Hey, this is Mohal Joshi from Los Angeles, California. I follow Indian foreign policy and defense with a special focus on Asia. You can follow me on Twitter at Mohal Joshi. Hey, this is Kishore Narayan from Bengaluru in India. I am an international relations expert specializing in global security, conflict resolution, and international negotiation. My focus areas include peace building and digital diplomacy. You can find me on Twitter at Veggie Diplomat. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of India Rising Strategic Affairs Conversations with Mohal and Kishore, a show in which we analyze the happenings from around the world and their impact on India. Before we begin with today's episode, we just hope that our friends in Afghanistan are safe during these uncertain times. Uh, we kind of uh, we kind of uh, woke up to the uh, terrible news of the bomb attack uh, in uh, the Kabul airport on the 26th of August. Uh, we just about five days left before the actual US pull out from Afghanistan. Now, this uh, suicide bombing, uh, the attack per se, happened at the Hamid Karzai International Airport, and uh, as per some reports, there were around 182 people killed out of which around 169 were Afghan civilians and around 13 from the United States Armed Forces. Now, uh, the Islamic State Khorasan province, ISKP, claimed responsibility for the attack. The next day, the US carried out a drone counterterrorism strike on an ISKP planner in Nangarhar province to kill suspected terrorists. The US military also conducted a drone strike on August 29 against a vehicle it stated was believed to be carrying at least one ISIL-KP suicide bomber in Kabul, who was trying to reach Kabul airport to attack it. Now, however, uh, to everyone's dismay, it was found that the relatives of the dead said that 10 people belonging to the same family, including seven children, were killed due to the airstrike. So again, uh, it was a retaliation that uh, went uh, haywire. As per report, some of those killed had previously worked for international organizations and also held visas allowing them US entry. So uh, this is kind of, uh, again, one more example of US intelligence uh, not being uh, trustworthy enough. Uh, I mean, time and uh, time, and time, and time again, we have seen uh, this happening. And uh, eventually, at the end of uh, the deadline, on the night of August 31, Major General Chris Donahue, the commanding officer of the 82nd Airborne Division, boarded the final flight, a U.S. Air Force C-17, which ended the 20 years presence of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. This, according to Taliban, uh, meant that the foreign occupiers or the foreign uh, powers had eventually and finally vacated uh, Afghanistan, and uh, this was time for uh, Taliban to uh, start ruling Afghanistan all over again. Now, Mohal, with this background, with this backdrop, uh, can you can you explain more about what and who are the ISKP? Yes, sure. So, the the ISKP or like the Islamic State Khorasan Province is not very well known, especially mm. before these events to many of the listeners. So I, the Khorasan in ISKP stands for a generic term, which 
is basically the area covering what is modern day Afghanistan, Pakistan and Central Asia. So the ISKP uh, began as a group in 2015 that was made up of former uh, Tariqe Taliban fighters who had fled Pakistan operation in the tribal areas. The ISKP cadres are like an odd mix of disgruntled elements from various terrorist groups such as the Taliban, the Tariqe Taliban Pakistan commonly referred as TTP and uh, uh, Jaish-e-Mohammed, uh, Lashkar-e-Taiba and they also have some foreign fighters from the uh, the Uzbek, uh, I think it's called the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan or something to that effect and also some foreign fighters from India. So it's like a whole uh, uh, mumbo-jumbo of all kinds of uh, disgruntled people who have joined uh, ISKP. Mm-hmm. Now, before we delve deeper into the ISKP, one thing to note is that all of these Pakistan-Afghanistan connected uh, extremist groups are certainly a complex set of characters. They can on one hand like have ideological differences and yeah, like I mean openly waged conflict with each other and like, you know, try to uh, hurt each other or kill each other's fighters. But then on other times, uh, mysteriously they are working together. Like, I mean, an example is the Gurudwara attack that happened in Kabul in February of 2020. Right. Uh, and then, I mean, this is also the reason for this are like complex. I mean, many of them are uh, mixed in due to their tribal ties and origins, which many times are bonded by uh, like deep ties by either blood or by marriage, you know. So these complex interconnects makes it sometimes figure out, hard to figure out, like, you know, who is on which side. I mean, which maybe a fighter was in group X today, but maybe now is in group Y. Sometimes it also, it makes it very hard to identify which group they're associated because they could be changing loyalties very soon i mean many times it's just due to like personal rivalries or clashes with the leadership or an or maybe even ideological differences mm-hmm. um, as to like maybe who is the more hardliner and that between that reasons many times uh, the the fighters would be changing their positions yeah maybe now, if you're not if, maybe if you're not hardcore enough then pro- possibly i might go fight with another person against you yeah yeah so the ISKP and Taliban have had differences in the past, as I said. The ISKP mm-hmm. has criticized Taliban's willingness to negotiate with the US, including the 2020 Doha Agreement. Now, back in mid-2015, the Taliban leadership, uh, when the ISIS first rose, had asked the ISIS Supreme Leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi to not form a parallel jihadist group in Afghanistan to challenge the Taliban. Now, the Islamic State uh, back then had responded publicly with a statement criticizing the Taliban and declaring uh, uh, it a nationalist movement and decrying its founder like uh, Mullah Omar. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. there have been like uh, some differences where like the the ISKP is more uh, uh, a cross-national movement while the Mm -hmm. Taliban is more uh, localized just to Afghanistan, you know, mostly. Right, right. So, like in an article uh, recently by the Laurie Institute by Amira Jadun, Andrew Mines, and Abdul Sayadisk, they write that, and I quote, ISKP views the Afghan Taliban both as its strategic rival in a saturated militant landscape and as an ideological opponent. 
it smears the Taliban's efforts to form an emirate based on national boundaries, which is directly opposed to the Islamic State version of a global caliphate. Additionally, the ISKP uh, deems aspects of the Taliban's ideology and governing practices as heretical, framing itself as the only legitimate jihadist actor in the region. Uh, in part, violent attacks such as those on Kabul airport are mean to distinguish the ISKP brand from the Taliban's cast doubt on Taliban's ability to govern and provide security and signal their own resolve to various audiences, all of which can ultimately increase terrorist organizations' longevity and serve as a recruiting tool. ISKP also uses these attacks to paint its longtime Taliban rival as an illegitimate collaborator with the West, incapable of delivering security to the Afghan people." Uh, end quote. So, I mean, this is like an interesting point that the ISKP says that okay, we are the true hardcore uh, followers of the ideology and like the Taliban is like uh, not following it to the letter of the law as per them. Now, I mean, as Taliban, I mean, we haven't seen much evidence of Taliban becoming moderate, but let's see if they become moderate in the future for more political recognition and more financial assistance. Hmm. then it will just give an ISKP an opportunity to brand them as diluting their core principles just for money and is bound to attract disgruntled followers from the Taliban towards the ISKP. So I mean, this is the blowback that the Taliban could face that on one hand, they have like a more extremist organization on the in, in the form of ISKP, but also on the other hand, they cannot dilute their brand so much that to start losing uh, followers to the ISKP. Mm, right. So yeah. in, in a way, in a way, this is kind of uh, similar to the way Muslim Brotherhood evolved within the uh, Middle East, where they kind of uh, rose up against the various uh, dictators in uh, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Libya. Uh, I mean, basically, they said uh, to hell with your nationalism. Uh, you are keeping us shackled. Uh, just to make sure that you continue to remain the dictator of this land, and mm -hmm. uh, looks like looks like Taliban and IS are also uh, uh, waging a similar kind of a battle out here. Taliban is more nationalist, uh, just focusing on uh, Afghanistan for now at least. And you have IS who do not believe in nationalistic boundaries; they merely uh, vouch for the caliphate, and they obviously do not agree with whatever. Taliban is doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think uh, that is a, a good drawdown on who or what ISKP stands for. But then I think we also need to understand, Mohal, of uh, did ISKP do, uh, I mean, uh, carry out this bomb attack all alone or was Taliban complicit in it? So, uh, again, as you mentioned, they have, not, they have no love lost for each other. And ISKP commander himself was killed by the Taliban during the recent takeover for the country. And it was clear from the attack at the airport that either the Taliban was complicit in allowing these attacks to happen or was simply unable to stop it. So, I mean, you cannot, you cannot tell that the Taliban was totally unaware of the situation or anything of that nature. It, it had to be, uh, I mean, it's clear that the Taliban had to be aware of ISKP in a mood to carry out such vengeful attacks. Now, uh, again, uh, anybody who tells that uh, Taliban 
can assist in counterterrorism has to be joking. I mean, there is no <laughs> two ways about it. Um, I mean, Indian Indian uh, journalist uh, Rahul Hassan Lashkar uh, had uh, quoted uh, that uh, around 600 IFKP fighters and their families sur uh, surrendered after a campaign by Afghan security forces in Nangarhar in November 2019. So this was about uh, close to two years back. Among them were Pakistanis, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Iranians, Maldivians, and even Indians. Now, uh, no prices for guessing who freed them from jails in, Ka in Kabul recently. Obviously, it was the Taliban. So again, this kind of uh, uh, bonhomie when needed and fighting when, uh, when not needed is kind of uh, the way these two uh, groups or these two organizations operate. And uh, we continue to see such uh, uh, illustrations and such instances over and over again. Uh, former raw intelligence officer Anand Arni said, and I quote, something not quite right here, but too sophisticated for ISKP. Multiple targets, motivating and moving two suicide bombers, manpower, logistics, safe houses, local assistance, explosives, crossing security ba barriers, all and all this happening within Kabul. So uh, this raises a lot of red flags as to whether Taliban was aware or not, or were they actually uh, willing to turn a blind eye towards all this. Kabir Taneja, fellow at ORF, uh, and also a, a first post analyst and author, he, he said, and I quote, there are questions about the Kabul attack. By all accounts, a city teeming with Taliban and the Haqqanis, both experienced entities, one main road to the airport, again, teeming with checkpoints, the, Talib, the Talibs uh, stopping people everywhere, foreigners uh, carrying out daily reports, and still we find uh, the ISKP infiltrating with guns and bombs. Um, so again, more and more questions being raised. Sushan Sarin um, also uh, exclaimed, and I quote, until two weeks back, the Taliban were doing precisely what the so-called ISKP is doing now. Overnight, Taliban have been transformed into Night and chiming arm, armor who will save the world from the terror of ISKP get real. ISKP is being grossly exaggerated to extract Western money, unquote. So again, um, people are skeptical, people are doubtful of how and uh, to what extent was the Taliban complicit in all this. Uh, we need to wait and watch as to uh, what is the real picture. Moving on, uh, Mohal, I want you to actually talk about this new war on terror 2.0 because now everyone is telling uh, that everyone is uh, kind of uh, forming opinions that the Talibs are moderate whereas the ISKP is the actual deal uh, they are the actual hardliners and we need to uh, cut them to size so can you talk about the new war on terror 2.0 yeah so many believe that in the future the Taliban could possibly be co-opted by the West as in the new war on terror against uh, even more radical groups like ISIS or ISKP. Now, one could see in the statements from the Western elites that there seems to be an attempt to, you know, tone down the image of the Taliban or make them more acceptable in the West. I mean, you could see that, I believe it was the, C the CDS of uh, UK who had mentioned that, oh, the Taliban are just nothing but just country <laughs> boys. Right. So we could see that there are attempts doing, I mean, uh, subtle attempts being made, you know, here mm -hmm. and there. 
I mean, now, even even in the university, even in academia, we have found mm-hmm. this happening in the past couple of years, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just uh, a concretizing of the opinion over a period of two three years. What we see now, yeah. Go ahead, Mohan. Yeah. So uh, coming back to it, uh, basically, there's a lot of attempt to like portray them in better light. Now. Uh, this could be simply to the fact i mean some people have said that there are a lot of citizens who are still stranded in afghanistan even post august 31st and the the western powers don't want to upset the taliban in any way shape or form because like they could be held as hostages in uh, that situation or maybe it's just that there is some mainstreaming for a lack of better term of the taliban a mm-hmm. new war or a new war on terror or terror or, or terror, war on terror 2.0 could even see where west suddenly considers this taliban as a proverbial good guys mm-hmm. versus uh, extremist groups like iskp who would be now the proverbial bad guys i mean this would perfectly work into like uh, uh, like <clears throat> the pakistan's case where they could have even done the bombing the suicide bombing in uh, against the airport to suddenly portray the isis in bad light so that the taliban mm-hmm. get a kind of a free pass as so like a speculation on many people's part mm-hmm. i mean even the chairman of joint chief staff of uh, army general mark milley has said that it is that it is possible that the us could coordinate with taliban on strikes against iskp in the future so that would be that would be a complete turn of the tables yeah i mean uh, that would be a radical one 180 degree situation mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. now the pakistan has been through many of these radical extremist groups and as they have been able to milk money from usa and the west over the past few decades like first with the war against the soviets in the afghanistan between 79 and 89 and now for the last 20 years with uh, the fight against uh, taliban in the mm. and al qaeda in afghanistan now this new specter of threat from the iskp could easily be be overplayed by pakistan to make sure that the largest that they have been receiving in this so called war on terror and i think uh, i think they received like up to like up to 30 billion dollars so they would want more the money to not stop uh, flowing especially since they are under the fatf uh, hardship with a lot of sanctions against them so they don't want this money to stop flowing i mean they could just simply spin it okay we are fighting this new radical group in the afpak region afpak region mm-hmm. which is the new uh, biggest terrorist threat uh, sushant sarin recently wrote uh, and i quote uh with decades of experience behind it the isi has mastered the art of manipulating and managing the contradictions and the conflicts between different terror organizations and using them for advancing security and foreign policy agendas of the pakistani side pitting one group against another against the other using one group as a foil for the other raising the profile of one group to increase leverage with another group making rivals come together for a specific purpose and then forcing to go, them to go their separate ways is something the isi has used to great effect in the war uh, through terror strategy even the whole taliban versus iskp narrative first came out of pakistan in court so i mean i mean they could easily be as i mean sushant sir in very rightly said that they could just be I mean, let's say if one group got out of hand, they could use another rival group to bring it down, or maybe even splinter the existing mm. group to mm-hmm. uh, create trouble back at them. 
uh, I mean, they are like shady stuff. They could do all kinds of shady stuff uh, uh, in this region to just make sure that their leverage doesn't go ever. Mm-hmm. So the battle for supremacy between various radical groups and ISKP is, uh, uh, I mean, could be the, one of the reasons could be that like that, as I said before, that the ISKP is myth that the Taliban have deviated from their ideology to set up a Islamic caliphate and a terror strike uh, might be the way to show them their place, you know, so. I mean, the reason is, so the speculation is there, like with the Kabul bombing, that was it, the ISA was sending out a message to both US and even the Taliban to not coordinate without the clearance of the ISA handlers in Pakistan, possibly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that brings, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, perfectly fine. Uh, Possibly, would you want to elaborate on this Pakistani angle? Yeah, so, I mean, we have seen that there have been a lot of celebrity posts and messages floating on social media by various Pakistani handles and social media handles and people. Uh, I mean, despite that, like uh, the Pakistani journalist Hamid Mir has claimed that the Pakistani people are not celebrating the Taliban victory. I mean, mm-hmm. as per him, the Pakistani deep state would be extremely, on one hand, be extremely happy that it got rid of a Western government in Kabul, but also, uh, and I know got an pro. Pakistan dispensation installed in Kabul, uh, but like they also have would worry about what comes next. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, the aim of the Pakistan deep state would be to uh, have the convert the influence that they now have in Kabul into the sort of leverage with the rest of the world, where you know they are the go-to or the middleman for the rest of the world for anything they want to deal with the Pakistan, the Taliban, and the Afghanistan. So Pakistan, I mean, this is a run of the mill where they would want to extract its pound of flesh for something they are mastered for the past few decades on how to get the Taliban to do something for the West and in return get some money or compensation for the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, Christine Fair, uh, I mean, who has been in the news lately also, has very well said, like, and I quote, Pakistan has spent decades setting fires in South Asia and then expected praise and remuneration for offering to put them out here. So, yeah, I mean, so coming to the Taliban and the, um, let me also cover a little bit in the Taliban and the ISI relationship. So during the past 20 years, the ISI and Taliban have had a symbiotic relationship. The Taliban needed sanctuary in the Pakistan for rest, recuperation and recruitment of its fighters mm-hmm. and also providing the logistical supplies, which were like kind of out of reach for the NATO alliance in, in inside Afghanistan. While on the other hand, what the ISA wanted was to have a force in Afghanistan, which was not inimical to its interest in the region and which one which gave its, you know, the fabled strategic depth versus India, you know. Mm. I mean, the families of many Taliban fighters, including the senior leadership, were provided safe haven in Pakistan. So this also led to a unique situation where, you know, uh, they were under duress from ISI, like because if they didn't do the bidding of their uh, hosts, I mean, their families could be threatened or used, could be used as a pressure points. Now that the situation has changed, where like Afghanistan is liberated, like many of the Taliban uh, fighters and their folks would be now across the Durand line in Afghanistan. So the question is, could, I mean, travel Bindi and ISI pressure them to the same extent? Maybe not, maybe yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have always been 
rumors that uh, the ISKP has been infiltrated by ISI uh, and some factions of ISKP are close to both ISI and Haqqani network would, could be used as a leverage against Taliban in case the Taliban went out of line, you know. I mean, the question also remains that how far Taliban is willing to, to Pakistan's line. I mean, Pakistan in the past has asked, I think, practically all governments in Afghanistan to accept the Durand line, which knowing the history, I mean, no Pashtunis were ever going to agree to, uh, given their roots uh, in history, you know, across the Durand line. Now, the other question is also important for Pakistan is its internal security, right? So can the new Taliban dispensation crack down on the TTP elements operating within Afghanistan? Because one claim that the ISI keeps making that the Afghan security forces to get back at Pakistan used to harbor the TTP elements inside Afghanistan who used to then launch attacks across the border into Pakistan against Pakistan armed forces. So now can the Taliban provide uh, security uh, to them? Or I mean, as, because some minister had just mentioned like, that, oh, that is like Pakistan's problem. We have nothing to do with it. So that will be an interesting thing to note if the blowback from all these fighters of you and the TTP being freed, like does Taliban crack down upon them or they just like let them run free and they go create trouble in uh, in Pakistan? Also because, uh, sorry to interrupt, also because mm-hmm. uh, Pakistan itself is uh, struggling to get out of the FAT of Grealish. Uh, it helps them to actually have these kind of uh, proxy groups and also have one proxy group uh, act as a leash against another proxy group. And mm-hmm. all, in all the confusion amidst all the milli, uh, Pakistan can go scot-free telling we have we have nothing to do with <laughs> all this. And, yeah. al- and also um, uh, when it comes to TTP, Pakistan famously keeps pointing fingers at uh, raw and uh, <laughs> i be India's. telling in india is india is uh, behind all these attacks so yeah pakistan yeah. can but but uh, now they i mean they can, they can certainly blame raw all day long mm-hmm. forever but like they can't blame nds which is the afghan security service because now it is not like anymore correct pro pro taliban <laughs> government yeah. so if there is anything coming across the border it's like uh, more uh, failure of uh, the taliban government to crack down on the ttp elements inside their country indeed I mean, also another challenge is like Pakistan wants no part of India in Afghanistan, including development projects uh, for reasons known to them. Like, I mean, because a development project would be kind of benign influence, but even like Pakistan is being so delusional, they even think that, oh, uh, Indian workers like uh, laborers are like, uh, oh, undercover Indian spies you know, inside <laughs> Afghanistan. So, I mean, Taliban has made some statements that they are open to Indian investment. I mean, they have seen the $3 billion of right. investment that uh, has done much good. But I mean, obviously, India will be wary of putting any, uh, I mean, I would say like boots on the ground in terms of the military sense, but like workers sending it out there because they would be easy targets for the Haqqanis like the, they did in the 2008 Kabul embassy attack, mm-hmm. but also in general that uh, India would not want no investment in there. So, I mean, the Taliban might be wanting Indian investment, but uh, Islamabad will want to have no part of it. You know. Actually, I was watching a, a Pakistani discussion on, on the internet and mm-hmm. uh, they kept harping on the point that India has far too many consulates within Afghanistan for such a small country 
yeah. and and to which uh, and with which India does not even share a border. So I mean that obviously the Pakistani point of view. But uh, yeah, they keep harping on it, telling uh, why do you need so many uh, <laughs> so many so many consulates? What are you doing here uh, apart from development projects? Surely you don't need so many consulates just to build a dam or just to build a highway. So yeah, that's how they look at it. Yeah, yeah. go ahead, Mohan. Yeah, I mean, and also they will use the ISKP factions that are uh, close to Rawalpindi mm-hmm. and also the Haqqanis to keep the Taliban in check in case the Taliban step out of control, you know. And then lastly, the issue of Pakistan creating trouble in Kashmir. Now, Taliban, as we know, is more inwardly focused uh, for in, uh, their inside the country versus other groups like ISKP, which could have nefarious designs in Jammu and Kashmir and rest of India. Mm-hmm. Now, ISKP was implicated as having carried out the attack on the Sikh Gurudwara last year, uh, with both of the gunmen being Indian citizens from uh, Kerala. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kabir Taneja recently wrote that there have been a spate of cases inside India where pro-ISIS operatives or sympathizers have been caught in places like uh, Delhi and Bengaluru. Now the question is that if Taliban doesn't want, might not want to interfere in Jammu and Kashmir, the question is, can it control various groups like ISKP plotting attacks from its soil onto Indian soil? I mean, that's a million-dollar question. I mean, Pakistan right. could easily leverage the Haqqanis inside the Taliban to plot attacks against Indian interest within Afghanistan. Now, see, the last time when Pulwama happened, like the plotters or the planners were, let's say, on Pakistani soil. So Mm. we still got them with the Balakota airstrikes. Now the question is if Pakistan might want to not claim that, okay, nothing happened on our soil, whether whether the the next terrorist attack was planned, God forbid, so they would say, okay, maybe it was planned in Afghanistan, so it will become much harder because we don't have a direct land access border (laughs) to anywhere in Afghanistan where you could just go bomb like a Balakot kind of situation. Mm -hmm. So they would more I mean, Pakistan, while Taliban might not want to create trouble in India, but like Pakistan might use the lawlessness the lawlessness in Afghanistan to plot attacks, let's say, maybe near the Afghanistan-Pakistan border to create trouble in India. So that's an open question on uh, how it will work out. And uh, I guess India will have to be prepared for all these uh, contingencies or situations. True, true, true. Okay, uh, so uh, we'll move on. Uh, I think I needed to uh, point out about the final resistance in the Panjshir Valley and how it was broken and what it means. I mean, uh, to the to the naked eye, it may just be one one small part of the country uh, where the Taliban was struggling to gain a foothold. But uh, be that as it may, Panjshir had gained a legendary status. Uh, because uh, even 40 years ago, when Taliban were uh, were kind of uh, coming in, uh, they were unable to they were unable to uh, capture the territory. Now, uh, what happened was uh, the Northern Alliance back then were uh, were successful in keeping Panjshir uh, out of Talib hands. Now, uh, this time around, uh, although the end result was not a surprise. The quick uh, fashion in which Talibs over, overrode the uh, resistance fighters, I think that was more of a surprise. But then uh, looking at it uh, in hindsight, every other provincial capital fell quickly. And even, even the national 
capital Kabul also fell uh, quite quickly. So, you know, in hindsight, I think uh, this was a kind of uh, uh, easy to guess. And also the fact that the leaders of the resistance, Aman Masood and Amrullah Saleh, uh, they were not even found in Panjshir. Uh, eventually, they were found in neighboring Tajikistan, as per a BBC report. Now, why is all this important? Last time around, when the Talib Taliban were in power, uh, they had to have one eye on uh, these regions, the northern areas, keep fighting against the resistance fighters, and also try to administer the rest of the country. But this time around, uh, the entire country is in their control. The war is officially over, and uh, this helps Taliban to completely focus on providing a brand new administration. So this, I think, will see uh, Taliban purely as an administrative entity rather than as a warmongering entity. But th I think this is where uh, we need to understand how, or we need to see how Taliban will want to uh, put up a uh, put up a face for itself so, to the uh, outside world. Mohan? Yeah, so I think a couple of points like, uh, which is different to the 90s. Mm -hmm. So one point is that there was a contiguous land connection. Correct. Uh, that the northern Panjshir enjoyed to Tajikistan. So they could be supplied via ground through the Tajikistan. So Tajikistan and even uh, Badkashan like this time, right, both right. areas are now under the control of Taliban. So they have been truly been cut off from all sides. Hmm. which makes uh, resupplying them very hard unless so, it's done by it's done by air essentially, the the, yeah, like, essentially this time Panjshir became more of an more of an enclave yeah yeah it's like an island this time around uh because you think even like mazar sharif i think maybe it was in under taliban's control but like some of the uh, areas adjoining uzbekistan and even tajikistan i believe were under the northern alliance control so they could still control the land routes coming in and hmm. uh, supply them the other point I wanted to make is that yeah, we saw those images that the capital of Panjshir, like uh, I think it's called Bazarak, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. uh, that had fallen. But the suspicion is that the the fighters, uh, the Panjshir fighters, have retreated to the mountain tops and they have left the valleys unguarded where the Taliban has taken over. So maybe the resistance has melted away into the mountain tops, from where it'll be it'll be harder to dislodge while they're letting the valleys be occupied by the Taliban, which is the easier task. But mm -hmm. there will be a guerrilla campaign fought from the mountaintops, but still the issue of getting resupplied uh, with mm -hmm. men and material would be a big challenge in the months and years to come. And Panchir is actually a very uh, weird topography. It is a 60 kilometer long valley with just mm -hmm. three uh, mountain passes uh, to enter into. So uh, unless and until you you capture those three mountain passes, uh, the Taliban will find it very difficult to uh, stay in control of Panjshir forever. And these, mm -hmm. these, uh, these uh, tribesmen or the fighters who have uh, fled to the mountains, they might actually find it easier to uh, oppose and uh, continue fighting, uh, more like a guerrilla force rather than as an organized uh, organized force so i think uh, yeah that's the that's the new dimension uh, that we will see about uh, how uh, Tali uh, taliban will uh, lo uh, look towards administering and that is br that brings me to my next point of how uh, 
Taliban announced a new 33 member cabinet uh, this week. And uh, if you look at the demographic of the cabinet, we have 31 Pashtun, two Tajik, and one Uzbek. Obviously, no women in the cabinet. Uh, and uh, although many people thought that the Taliban were now a new uh, or evolved uh, uh, organization, um, it's quite obvious that uh, the Taliban doesn't uh, think likewise. So, yeah, even within those 31 Pashtun, uh, we have four of the five ex Guantanamo detainees who were exchanged for American soldier Bo Bardagal, um, again, uh, who was taken as a prisoner by the Taliban. And these four of the five ex Guantanamo detainees now have senior leadership positions. Now, the fifth person is actually a governor in one of the provinces. 17 of these 33 cabinet ministers, more than half, are on the UN sanctions list. All 33 members are members of the Taliban. Absolutely no representation for any other groups. Although there was a lot of talk of power sharing during the intra-Afghan talks uh, in the past uh, year, year and a half, where there were talks that somebody from the Karzai or the uh, Ghani uh, government might actually be included in uh, in the power sharing agreement. However, the Taliban, uh, I think the Taliban thought that since they got an absolute victory, they they would have thought uh, there is no need to include anybody outside yeah. the Taliban. There's no incentive. Absolutely. Now again, the thing is since uh, all the hardliners came back to pick up plump positions within the government. And then we also had the immediate news of uh, protests by women in Kabul, uh, where the protesters were beaten up and the media folks who were covering the entire event were arrested. This kind of was a deja vu moment. When you have hardliners in the government, you have protesters being beaten up, you have media persons arrested. I mean, this is more of the same rather than any change that anybody wanted to see on the ground. Uh, so I think. Uh, uh, the outside countries would want to recalibrate their expectations simply because uh, uh, these people uh, might want to continue where they left off. Malvi Hassan Akund uh, is the Islamic Emirates' new Rais ul Wahara or the Prime Minister. Now, he himself, interestingly, does not have a power base of his own. Therefore, he does not pose a new he does not pose any major significant threat to the leaders of the other two major factions. Now, which are the two other major factions? One is uh, the uh, southern faction uh, dominated by leaders hailing from the Kandahar region. And the other one is the eastern faction led by Sirajuddin Haqqani or the Haqqani network. So, uh, Hassan Akun, the Malvi uh, Hassan Akun, uh, will pose no threat to either of the two factions. However, Hassan's two deputies, Abdul Ghani Baradar and Abdul Salam Hanafi, uh, are again, uh, uh, they are the two, uh, they are from these two major factions. Baradar was Taliban's chief negotiator with, with the United States in Doha. In 2010, Baradar was arrested by the ISI, likely as a consequence of his decision to pursue independent peace negotiations with the United States both in 2004 and 2009. He was released by the ISI in 2018, and eventually he began peace talks in Doha. So Mohal, the point that you were making, whenever Taliban goes awry, 
uh, out of the Pakistani strip, Pakistan finds ways to bring them back uh, under the leash. So I think that way, uh, again, uh, this time around too, uh, when he was released by the ISI and he began peace talks in Doha, obviously it had the blessings of the ISI. On the other hand, you have uh, former Taliban chief uh, Mullah Omar's son, Mullah Muhammad Yaqub. Uh, now he is the defense minister. Now, again, you also have uh, the new chief of army staff, Kari Fasihuddin, who is also from the Badakhshan province, as you mentioned, uh, Mohan. And he is uh, from the uh, Tajik ethnicity. However, although he might be from the Tajik ethnicity, he, he is pro-Taliban. And he helped in the complete takeover of the northern areas, including the Badakhshan province, which houses the Wakhan corridor. Uh, and therefore, uh, people believe that he found the new job of being the chief of army staff. However, a point to note is he is close to the ATIM, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement. What is East Turkestan? That is the Uyghur province in uh, Western China. So a lot of points to be connected out here. Again, uh, the most powerful, prominent, uh, powerful person in the cabinet is not the Prime Minister Akun, but rather the Interior Minister Shirajuddin Haqqani. He uh, I mean, by getting that plump post in that crucial ministry, it is obvious that the ISI now wants to have complete control of Afghanistan. Obviously, the US were uh, always asking that the Haqqani network has to be defunded, has to be uh, derostered, and any, any support from Pakistan to Haqqani network has to stop, uh, even for Pakistan to get out of the FATF uh, uh, grey list. But now, since Shirajuddin Haqqani is now in control in Kabul. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's yet another proxy for uh, Pakistan within uh, Afghanistan. I mean, like four of these, uh, I mean, 17 or half, more than half of them are on the UN sanctions list, but like four <laughs> of these carry a bounty of $20 million on their head. So imagine like a four uh, $20 million had a uh, bounty. People are like running the government now. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, moving on, Sher Mohammed Abbas Tanikhai, the Taliban political office head, uh, he recently met with the Indian ambassador in Doha. We'll come back to it later. And uh, he mentioned that he wants good relations with India. Uh, and uh, again, this kind of ruffled a few feathers within Pakistan because Pakistan didn't uh, expect this statement coming in from the political head uh, from uh, Doha. Anyway, uh, Mohan, you now want to talk about uh, the Haqqani and uh, the TTP and the quagmire of uh, allegiances? Yeah. So before that, I just want to mention that in the last episode, we had mentioned about uh, Akunzada, mm-hmm. the, the, the current head of uh, Taliban. Now it is mentioned, so it seems that he is not occupying any political position. It mm-hmm. seems that the Taliban is going to follow like an Iran kind of model where right. the religious leader is like kind of a de facto uh, president or like a higher authority mm-hmm. where he would be probably just relegated. I mean, or I mean, he would have the power to make the final decisions, but uh, the day-to-day running of the government is left to the prime minister mm-hmm. and the other cabinet folks while he'll have a more ceremonial post 
similar to like what the i forget like what's it called in iran the ayatollah yeah the ayatollah in iran you know. okay uh, there so was, there was also talk of uh, uh, hyper not being at the best of his health right i think that was also that was also a concern yeah i mean that could be the case i mean they are always reluctant because of lot the repeated drone strikes which just took, took out mm-hmm. a few of the taliban leaders they might not be willing to appear in public and there also some funny funny photos on the internet where some of the key cabinet ministers have uh, their photos with their backs to the camera and not <laughs> even showing their faces <laughs> okay anyway so uh, one thing that kishor touched upon i wanted to elaborate upon and so basically there was uh, some differences of friction between the eastern and the southern faction so the eastern faction is the the pro hakani faction that's near the border with uh, pakistan and the southern faction which is the more the kandar side faction so there was some um, rumors that there was uh, some disputes and fighting between the two factions during the formation of the cabinet now the what is being told is that the because of this the dgi so the director general of isi from pakistan like faiz ahmed was photographed in a kabul hotel along with the pakistani ambassador to afghanistan he had to come to kabul to settle the dispute and uh, assign the various posts or maybe just <laughs> smoothen over the process of who gets what post i mean the as i mentioned before the hakanis have been rumored to have helped in the suicide bombing in the airport i mean the the southern faction believes that the hakanis have an some relationship with some of the iskp fighters who were earlier with ttp mm-hmm. and uh, they have used this to uh, put down the i mean just show their influence to put the southern faction at a bit of a disadvantage with this action you know so how this dispute evolves between the two factions over the coming weeks months and years is something we'll have to wait out and watch whether it becomes a more uh, bitter dispute between the two factions i mean with the possibility i mean i don't think there'll be a civil war but there could be more uh, infighting among the factions or maybe they will peacefully coexist or maybe coerced by the uh, isi to uh, exist uh, in a better mm-hmm. so Uh, not only that this jostling for positions have happened between the eastern and the southern factions but there are also some differences between uh, uh, the politicians and the military commanders i mean some of the military commanders who have fought on the in the battlefield are uh, not very happy that many of this political posi- people who had enjoyed hospitality in mm-hmm. let's say qatar or pakistan are now or uh, dictating terms to them who have done the hard fighting on the ground so there is a lot of uh, i mean the taliban might appear as a monolith faction but there are uh, differences and uh, difference of opinions so it will be interesting to see how this evolves over time uh, that's that's a good point i i think it's important to understand that taliban itself is not a monolith and there are multiple uh, po- uh, multiple forces within pulling in opposite diametrical directions mohan yeah so moving on to another point is like what's the international support going to be for this new cabinet now many countries like uh, us have mentioned like i mean 
that like the lack of inclusivity among the minor ethnic groups and especially the women gives a good reason not to afford any official recognition to Taliban. I don't think it was coming either way, but now this gives a good, I would say like excuse for a lack of better term to not recognize this government. I mean, there will be some recognition from certain set of countries like, uh, for example, Pakistan for sure and Qatar who nego helped negotiate the Doha deal and also Turkey would want to get some influence in this region. Uh, but what about the other players in the in the neighborhood? So Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, who are the next door, literal next door neighbors to the north, would not be happy that the token representation of the Tajik and Uzbeks have gotten like it's like one, two Tajiks and one Uzbek. Uh, and I think the, the, the Tajiks and the Uzbeks do constitute, I think, something in the double digits. I don't remember the demographics in front of me mm -hmm. a substantial amount of population. So they are like way underrepresented. Uh, in this government, Iran, on the other hand, would be would be not happy at all as there are no Hazaras or I mean who are like Shias mm, mm. Uh, represented at all in the cabinet. There's like zero representation. Now this is bound to deepen the fault lines within Afghanistan among ethnic lines. Something which was seen even within the first Taliban reign between 1996 and 2001, the Northern Alliance was mainly uh, led by Tajiks and uh, Uzbeks. Uh, and uh, I think even like Hazaras were opposed to them. If I, I sorry, I don't recall very very well. I mean, even uh, in the Ghani and the Karzai government, one of the complaints that actually Pakistan was making, sort of on behalf of Taliban, that the military dispensation was heavily uh, in favor of Tajiks and Uzbeks, something that they didn't want. So now we could have a completely reverse situation where we could have an unbalanced formation in the other hand where there could be a lot of Pashtuns but not enough Tajiks and Uzbeks in the uh, upper military and intelligence hierarchy. Um, another point we have to remember is that the Taliban, as per the Doha agreement, has agreed not to let its soil be used for terrorist activities against US and its Western allies, which are like thousands of miles away. But like, what about the nearby next door countries? I mean, next door uh, neighbors of Afghanistan, they certainly don't want the spillover of violence and terrorism from Afghanistan into their own territories. I mean, let's say if this ethnic tensions, which I mentioned due to the lack of representation from the cabinet becomes worse. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, uh, this could lead to an insurgency and a possible, I mean, uh, let's say there's an insurgency and a possible civil war. I mean, we are not sure because maybe if the Panjshir resistance is wiped out, then there would be no, there'd be a hardly any token resistance against the Taliban. But let's say if it manages to survive and stays uh, as a staying power, then there could be a new civil war and insurgency inside. So now the Taliban would be forced to spend much of its energy in rooting out these uh, uh, these rivals, I mean, vanquish in the rivals, rather than rooting out the extremism from Afghanistan, which could spill over into other countries. Now, if the internal strife is minimal, I mean, even if the internal strife was minimal, let's say, uh, and they didn't have to spend a lot of energies on their opponents, the million-dollar question is, will they be cracking down on various extremist groups threatening nations all over the world? I mean, as we saw in the late 90s, I mean, U.S. made repeated requests to crack down on Al-Qaeda, but, but Mullah Omar and Taliban refused to hand over bin Laden even after the 9-11 attacks when they were presented with proof and they said, like, oh, we are going to hand him over under any cost. 
so the question is like will they be able to crack down even if if there is civil war even if this is without a civil war on this i mean what kind of guarantees the neighbors can have like i mean let's just talk about the immediate neighbors like can taliban guarantee that etim or east turkistan islamic movement will not create unrest in xinjiang china we don't know can taliban guarantee that ttp won't attack pakistan armed forces in khyber pakhtunwa and waziristan and all those areas we don't know can taliban guarantee that iskp won't be creating trouble in uzbekistan tajikistan and even russia we don't know can taliban guarantee that iskp and al qaeda uh, indian peninsula i mean the branch of affiliate of in al qaeda not carry out at, at terror attacks on indian subcontinent i mean we don't know so like all the neighbors would be on edge hmm. and monitoring to see like if the taliban can fulfill its promises even though many of these countries i mean minus india i mean pakistan china the soviet republics russia are happy to see the back of the us after 20 years because they believe this is their own backyard i mean sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for because if taliban can control all these insurgent groups inside their country i mean it would blow back into their neighboring countries you know right right sure yeah yeah uh okay so another thing that we need to talk about is actually the uh, the cost of uh, running the country itself now as everyone uh, is aware most of the afghan reserves are held in the us so the question of money to run the country is now an acute is an acute uh, problem and that is something that the Af- uh, that the talibanis want to address at the earliest the chinese um from from their side have promised a loan or a grant whatever you call it of around 30 million dollars now this spinners when you compare to the uh, few billions that the previous government spent every year to run the country again running a country uh, is a much bigger challenge than running an insurgency campaign now the problem is while russia china and pakistan are asking for normalization of relations with the taliban the taliban too have made their initial moves by stating that china is their closest ally claiming that china is quote ready to invest in and reconstruct afghanistan unquote as much as it might uh, seem um, natural for taliban to side with china this is also likely to backfire on the taliban since they are committing themselves too early in the game and uh, while the chinese have promising loans both with interest and interest free uh, types there are so many preconditions like early recall unilateral cancellation etc which are antithetical to the hanafi jurisprudence on uh, loan borrowings so i think uh, this, this is yet another possibility where the hardliners within the taliban might find it uh, difficult to digest as to how they are taking loans from the chinese uh antithetical to the hanafi jurisprudence on loan borrowings also mohal uh, a point that uh, you were talking about russia has refused to attend the swearing in or the commencement uh, ceremony tajikistan's foreign minister shirojuddin muhriddin has said that they would only support an afghan government that includes all ethnic groups including the tajiks he has also said that the taliban conducted air strikes on tajiks in panchir with the aid of a third country 
uh, obviously everybody without naming uh, pointing finger at pakistan and uh, the 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 complaint is quite common uh, when you see uh, all the countries complaining and simple that uh, the taliban does not have a all inclusive government does not have women in their cabinet and uh, the ethnic uh, population might uh, end up becoming uh, unrepresented and might even become victims of uh, specific targets so i think these are the different uh, dimensions of nation building or administration that the taliban will face and uh, every every regional power uh, surrounding taliban will want uh, will want uh, this to be addressed however uh, i think we'll now move on to the india angle wherein we'll primarily look at it from an indian perspective india ambassador to uh, to qatar deepak mittal uh, talked with uh, sher mohammad abbas tanikhai as i already pointed out earlier he is the head of the taliban's political office in doha this meeting was held at the indian embassy in doha but surprisingly on the request of the taliban side and uh, a statement was issued by the external affairs ministry to the effect and that statement i quote discussions focused on safety security and early return of indian nationals stranded in afghanistan the travel of afghan nationals especially minorities who wish to come to india also came up the statement said now uh, apparently uh, ambassador mittal uh, also raised india's concern that afghanistan soil should not be used for anti indian activities and terrorism in any manner also the taliban representative assured the ambassador that these issues would be positively addressed unquote so uh, it's it's kind of obvious that uh, the taliban also want to talk with india india is willing to talk with them although not uh, uh, directly wanting to uh, give them an official status i think i think uh, the indian government is willing to just uh see where is a common ground if at all and see how uh, there can be a channel of communication open also as per a report in hindustan times in june this was before the fall of kabul india had for the first time open channels of communication with several afghan taliban factions and leaders including mullah abdul ghani baradar the outreach was largely being led by indian security officials and was limited to taliban factions and leaders that were perceived as being outside the sphere of influence of pakistan now this uh, the meeting within the indian embassy uh, india has acknowledged uh, this is the first time that india has acknowledged any sort of official contact with the taliban since the group assumed power in kabul also uh, the uh, stanaghai himself is seen as number 2 in taliban's negotiation negotiating team and third overall among the leaders based in qatar he surprisingly was trained for several years at the indian military academy in dehradun in the early 1980s when he was an officer in the afghan army he has apparently taken on a key role in foreign relations including the taliban's outreach to countries in the region also uh, the taliban social media posted a 46 minute video in which stanikhai himself said that the group wants to continue 
Afghanistan's political, economic, and cultural ties with India. This was the first time a member of Taliban's top hierarchy had spoken on the issue since the takeover of Kabul. Stanik Hai in that video said, I quote, India is very important for the subcontinent. We want to continue our cultural, economic, and trade ties with India like in the past. Trade with India through Pakistan is very important for us. With India, trade through air corridors will also remain open. We give due importance to our political, economic, and trade ties with India, and we want these to continue. We are looking forward to working with India in this regard. Now, uh, all this uh, kind of uh, uh, points to the fact that Taliban is keen to maintain trade ties with India to begin with and possibly uh, expand it going forward. Now, uh, we have leaders like Stanakhai and Anasakani who have been engaged in discrete efforts to gauge the thinking in New Delhi uh, towards the group. Both Stanakhai and Hakani, uh, part of the group's negotiating team, have also been part of an outreach towards India over the past uh, one or two weeks. This has resulted in them being seen as the main contact persons for any Taliban contacts with the Indian side in coming days. So uh, you see a lot of things happening uh, under the radar uh, behind the prying eyes of the media. Now, even, even in a recent interview given to CNN News 18, uh, Taliban leader Anas Hakani said, Kashmir is not part of our jurisdiction and interference is against our policy. However, in another interview with a Pakistan-based channel, Taliban spokesman Zabiullah Mujahid urged Pakistan and India to sit together to resolve all outstanding issues. Uh, within India too, uh, let's focus to Delhi. Within India too, the government called for an all-party meet on the 26th of August where the Minister for External Affairs, Dr. Subramaniam Jaishankar, briefed all the political parties. He emphasized that the government was following a wait-and-watch policy regarding uh, indulging with the Taliban. However, he also mentioned that the primary focus for the government now was to evacuate religious minorities and those Afghans who had worked on Indian projects or in the Indian embassy and consulates. On the security front, uh, India's National Security Advisor, Ajit Doval, has been working closely with both the US and Russia. On the US side, Doval spoke with CIA, CIA Director William Burns, who had flown down to Delhi, uh, but the details of the, missing, uh, details of the meeting are not made public. But it's generally believed that the security issue was discussed. On the Russian side, Doval spoke to his Russian counterpart, Nikolai Patrushev, and a possible spillover of terror activities to India, Central Asia, and even Russia was discussed. So I think that way, uh, it is quite obvious that India is trying to engage as many people both within Taliban and also within the greater region to understand and to discuss and uh, put on the table their red lines and see how to engage with the Taliban uh, in the future. Now, obviously, engaging does not mean giving legitimacy. Uh, legitimacy would, I mean, Taliban will have to earn it, and that obviously will take a lot of time. But for now, Indian government would, would want to continue engaging with the different factions within Taliban 
and also with uh, the regional players so that one way or the other india will have what some amount of leverage within uh, afghanistan now as much as we are thinking of kabul now being ruled by taliban and how to engage with them it is also essential to understand how pakistan might use the resurgence of taliban to send insurgents into kashmir internal security within jnk has been strengthened there is no doubt about it we have already covered uh, this in multiple episodes in the past the line of control has been fenced with regular surveillance with drones and night vision cameras moreover earlier the number of foreign terrorists was quite high in the jammu and kashmir state but over the years this number has dropped significantly more importantly there is some kind of a fatigue uh, for the kashmiris who have come to realize that it is not worthy to stay behind uh, to rally behind pakistan expecting them to help kashmiris at the opportune moment so i think that way uh, india is kind of covering all it, all its bases hoping that uh, uh, the the backlash of the taliban taking over afghanistan will be minimal on itself mohan uh, so with that uh, do you have any other closing comment before we wind up yeah i think you very well mentioned that we will have to uh, engage with taliban and it doesn't mm-hmm. mean giving them legitimacy right. we have to discuss what do they want on the relationship and also discuss our headlines in terms of internal security mm-hmm. the pakistan will want to use their leverages with various terrorist groups to create trouble in kashmir for sure so we'll have to be on the watch out uh, i think as we had mentioned in the earlier episode i mean the other point like is like pakistan like might be celebrating now but there could be very well a blowback towards their end uh, as we also mentioned that the tajikistan iran uh, the central asian republic they all will be watching very carefully because they don't want any blowback from them especially uh, pakistan and china who are supposed to be the new benefactors of the new regime in uh, kabul they will also have to wait very carefully i think china has acknowledged saying that we will uh, wait and watch and invest like you know slowly into taliban i mean not taliban slowly into afghanistan mm-hmm. i mean because they don't want to be get get caught in the quagmire of a uh, sort of graveyard of empires that both russia and now us mm. have mm. gotten them themselves into the, i mean as long as the security needs are met i mean we can see that even in a place like pakistan there could be attacks on chinese engineers and stuff so it will be interesting to see if they would do large scale investments because that would mean putting chinese boots on the ground because i'm not sure how much they would rely on mm. the taliban to provide security for any uh, investments and stuff so it'll be interesting days uh, forward for all the in the whole neighborhood you know kishore mm-hmm. mm-hmm. great okay so i think uh, we'll wind up this episode but before before we do that let's switch our focus to recommendations mohan you have any recommendation for today yeah so since we are like uh, close to the anniversary of 911 i think i'll recommend a movie that was uh, based on the loosely based on the story of the first american special army uh, us army special forces that was sent to afghanistan immediately after the september 11 attacks it's called 12 strong it's about this uh, detachment of 12 soldiers who uh, goes in the very early days of the war against taliban 
and interestingly they are accompanied by uh, general dostam like a uzbek general mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was part of the northern alliance uh, it stars like chris hemsworth and it was interesting uh, uh, movie like i mean it, like some of the dialogues also is like that oh one day you will be here and one day you will be gone you know so like that the dostam says to the americans which have been proven to be so true you know like one day you are our enemy and another day you are like you know our friend sort of thing mm-hmm. <laughs> sure any okay. what's your recommendation for this week yeah so i uh, read a fascinating article by abhinav pandya on uh, the national interest portal uh, it's titled the pakistan connection how iskp became islamabad latest proxy and it talks about pakistan's double game of keeping up the pretense of being a us ally uh, while sheltering funding and training terror groups with the same us aid money that they got and uh, he he goes on to say that the strategy of pakistan is most likely to continue that was a fascinating article that i read and i would like to uh, recommend that for today okay uh, so uh, to continue hearing about such topics uh we would urge you listeners to subscribe to our channel india rising wherever you are listening to us if you are listening to us on youtube please press the bell icon to get notifications about new episodes if you have not left us a review we urge you to do so as it helps other listeners like you in finding us we would also like to hear from you if you have any suggestions on any topics that you would like us to cover do remember that these topics should be directly related to indian foreign policy until the next time this is mohal and kishore signing off